Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Before I start this week, I have some notices to give out. The first, and this is a biggie, is that we have now reached over $200 worth of support on Patreon. Wow. When I first set that up as a target, I never thought I'd get there. It was a wild stab in the dark. And thank you so much to everyone who has supported me. However, with great support comes great responsibility, because, perhaps foolishly, I said that I would make this a weekly podcast if we hit $200 per month. Now, I'm a man of my word, so that is what we're going to do. This, though, will mean a few things. First is that episodes will likely be a little shorter from here on out. I won't have time to do 45-minute-plus epics anymore. I imagine they'll be far closer to 30 minutes. That probably means that the miniseries on each queen may get a little longer, but as usual, we'll just have to wait and see. Indeed, this is what has happened to the following episode, which is why this is now a three-part run of Cleves, rather than the two-part I had initially planned. But never fear, the show will have the same level of research and detail as it did before, and now there will be twice as much of it, so what's not to like? I may also have to take breaks here and there for holidays and things like that, as I can no longer absorb these into my schedule. I'm going to try and break things up here and there with chat episodes and supplementals. I love doing those, and I think they make for a nice change of pace. Basically, I'll be making up as I go along, so you'll have to bear with me. So, you know, no change there then. And so now I'll give out my usual plugs. If you want to join my noble and courageous band of supporters, then head over to patreon.com forward slash Queens of England podcast to find out more. And you can also follow me on Twitter at, at Queens Podcast and on Facebook. Just search Queens of England Podcast. And of course, there's my website, www.queensofenglandpodcast.com. Finally, I have to warn you now, dear listeners, that this episode contains smut. Lots of smut. If you're offended by such things, then I can only apologise. But honestly, there is no good way to tell the story my way without it. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. Hello, and welcome to the Queens of England podcast. Episode 48, Anne of Cleves, God Send Me Well to Keep. Last time, we saw possibly the greatest meet-cute backfiring in history, as after months of looking forward to meeting his new German wife, Henry found her to be not what he expected. Be it her looks, her manner, her fashion, or even simply her lack of knowledge about Henry's dressing-up games, she had made a terrible first impression on the English king. He had left her in Rochester in a fury, berating anyone who'd had anything to do with the match. 
However, there was one man, above anyone else, who was most responsible for bringing this marriage about, Thomas Cromwell. Henry reserved special ire for him, and gave him the all-important task of getting him out of this marriage before it officially happened. Henry and Anne's first meeting had been on the 1st of January, and their wedding was due to take place on the 6th. The following day, he was in Greenwich, giving Cromwell his instructions, but there was no time to lose, as the day after that was Anne's grand entrance to Greenwich, and the official first meeting between the soon-to-be man and wife. It was decided that everything should proceed as originally planned, and so in a specially prepared area at Blackheath near Greenwich Park, Anne arrived to see tents and pavilions of cloth of gold. There were speeches and all kinds of ceremonies. She got changed as soon as she arrived and emerged dressed in a rich dress of cloth of gold in the German style, bedecked in jewels. When news reached Henry that Anne had arrived, he set off from Greenwich Palace. Not to be outdone in the outfit game, he too was wearing all the rich velvets to masks, gold cloth that you would expect. He may have been old and growing ever more decrepit, but this was a glimpse for everyone of the Henry of old. His horse too was richly trapped, and he was accompanied by his courtiers. The couple had their second meeting on horseback. Anne proceeded towards him while Henry stopped, took off his hat, saluted her, and then embraced her. Then, according to the Hall Chronicle, quote, She likewise, not forgetting her duty, with the amiable aspect and womanly behaviour, received his grace with sweet words and great thanks. Oh, what a sight was this, to see so goodly a prince and so noble a king, to ride with so fair a lady, of so goodly a stature, and so womanly a countenance, and especial of such good qualities. It's fair to say, then, that Hall, at least, was taken in by Henry's pretense. The couple, followed by a great company of attendants and courtiers, then led a procession to the palace. Lining the route were thousands of Londoners, straining for a view of their new queen. The river was lined with barges bedecked in banners and flags, and there was much celebratory cannon fire. In other words, all appeared normal. England had made a suitably great statement to their visitors from Cleves. They were a big deal. This marriage was a big deal. Behind closed doors, however, things were not so rosy. After arriving back at the palace, Henry found Cromwell and is said to have exclaimed, quote, My lord, is it not as I told you? Say what you will, she is nothing so fair as she hath been reported, howbeit that she is well and seemly. Cromwell was forced to say that, while he believed she had a, quote, queenly manner, she certainly was not the beauty that they were expecting. I mean, he had to, really. The first thing that was done to try and extricate Henry from this marriage was to summon the two Clevesian ambassadors and demand that they produce proof that Anne's former engagement to Francis of Lorraine was legally done. This would have been Anne's party's first clue that something was amiss. Now, there is a certain amount of disagreement amongst the sources that I have read about how big of a deal this is. One view states that if the ambassadors were surprised by this, then it was for show, as they must have known this documentation was going to be asked for, and that not having it would be a problem. This is a view best espoused in my reading by historian Retha Warnick. On the other hand, there is an alternative argument that says that this was not really necessary. The deal had already been signed. The English ambassadors had been assured of Anne's eligibility to marry when the treaty was signed. Why would everyone go to such trouble to get everything to this point if they were unsure about her freedom to marry? But this does leave one question open. Why didn't they have the documentation? Indeed, these documents were not presented to Henry, despite numerous requests, and that is rather odd. There were at least three copies of the documents, and since they survive, we know that they existed and proved that she was free to marry but the English could not risk their alliance by questioning the word of honour of the ambassadors, which they gave readily. 
and then, just to compound things, Anne herself swore before Cromwell that she was free to marry. There was no way of backing out now without causing severe offence. Without legal recourse to get out of this marriage, Henry's only option, if he wanted to back out, was to do so on his own steam. But that was not really diplomatically possible either. The very reason for marrying Anne in the first place was to secure England against a hostile continent dominated by Francis I of France and Charles V of the Holy Roman Empire. Insulting the honour of Cleves and her duke by repudiating Anne would be a diplomatic disaster and could leave England more dangerously isolated than it had already been. Henry had no option. He had to marry her. In frustration, he exclaimed to his chief minister Cromwell, quote, is there none other remedy but that I must needs, against my will, put my neck in the yoke? Just a touch of melodrama there, but a sign of just how little Henry wanted to go through with this wedding. Henry's fourth wedding date started with the signing of a declaration by the Clevesian ambassadors on behalf of Duke William that they viewed Henry as a good and true Roman Catholic who had been unjustly treated by the Pope. This was important, as it further confirms the rest of Europe that this did not mean that England was going to be continuing down the road of religious reform. I say it again, Henry was not a Protestant, even by the standards of the time. He wanted to steer England away from those crazy people on the continent. He just wanted to control the English Roman Catholic Church. Then, an hour later, in the gallery just outside his main apartments at Greenwich, Henry married his fourth wife in front of the whole court. It was presided over by Archbishop Cramner, and it all went very smoothly. She arrived resplendent in a golden gown embroidered with pearls. Her long blonde hair was worn down as a symbol of virginity, and on her head she wore a gold crown festooned with jewels. She received a ring from Henry that had engraved upon it, quote, God send me well to keep. After this, they celebrated mass, had the customary feast, followed by a masked ball, and then finally, the all-important bedding ceremony. Now, this was very important. Just as with Catherine of Aragon, the subject of what did or did not happen here matters a great deal. I've described this rather weird ceremony before with other queens, but to remind you, first the bride was brought into the chamber, undressed by her attendants, and then tucked into bed. Then the groom arrived, was undressed by his attendants, and then he too was tucked into bed. Then a priest turned up and conducted a brief religious ceremony in front of the couple and a whole load of courtiers and well-wishers. Then everybody left, leaving the bride and groom to consummate the marriage, with everyone else keeping their ears to the door to have a good ribald slash perverted nose. We even know a little bit about the bed, as the headboard survives to us, and it appears it was either made for the occasion or merely decorated specially for this use. It is decorated with their initials, H.A., the royal motto, Dieu à mon and Henry's long list of titles. Most interesting, though, it has two rather extraordinary carvings on the posts. It's currently held in the borough collection in Glasgow, and I've put an image of it in the show notes. On the left-hand side, there is a lusty male cherub with an enormous erection, barely contained by its codpiece, and on the right is a female, heavily pregnant cherub, holding a sword and a serpent, very phallic symbols. So yeah, this was one unsubtle bed. That woodwork was on display that night, but precious little else was. I can only apologise for that. I would tell you that is the last bit of smut in the show, but I would be lying. Reports from the time differ on whether they attempted intercourse that night or if they delayed it to another. There could be many reasons for a delay. One is the obvious distaste that Henry had for Anne, but a simpler one may be that they got married on Epiphany, a holy day where sex was normally forbidden. They got a dispensation from the Archbishop to marry on this day, as that was also forbidden normally, 
but perhaps Henry didn't want to test the Almighty's patience. The important thing is that it appears that when sex was first attempted, either on the wedding night or a few days after, Henry could not, for want of a better word, perform. Now, the excuse that Henry would use for this is that he could not perform because of his revulsion of his wife's body. She was too ugly to turn him on, despite him being the most virile of men. Her disgusting features prevented even he. This is borne out by what Cromwell recalled Henry telling him about their first sexual encounter. Now you guys know me, I'm not one to shy away from sharing the sexier or perhaps not side of history. So here's Henry's set of excuses. Quote, I liked her before, not well, but now I like her much worse, for I have felt her belly and her breasts, and thereby I can judge that she should be no maid, which struck me so to the heart when I felt them that I had neither the will nor courage to proceed any further in such matters. So in this account, he is basically saying that he thought she was ugly before, but now he had seen her naked and felt her up a bit, getting to say second base, he not only still found her ugly, but using his powers of feel, he could deduce that she was not a virgin. He later clarified the reasons behind this piece of intuition to a Sir Thomas Hennage, saying that she could not be a maiden because of the, quote, looseness of her breasts and other tokens. He also mentioned for the record that she smelled bad. The blame here, then, is very clearly placed on Anne, most specifically her morality, looks, and body odour. But there is another theory which is popular at the moment, and that is that Henry suffered from periods of impotency. Now, this had first come to light during the trials of Anne Boleyn and the various men with whom she is supposed to have committed adultery. It had also been mentioned, too, during his marriage to Jane Seymour, but of course he had managed to produce a son with her in that time, so things seemed fine. But here, it resurfaces... And it's interesting to note that, while in his early years we can pinpoint a number of mistresses, it seems that Henry took far fewer, if any, in his later years. Now, it would be a bit of a stretch to call this conclusive proof, but it does seem to me that he was having problems with erectile dysfunction at this time. Let's not forget that he was an unhealthy, overweight man approaching his 50s. It would not be at all a surprise if he did suffer from erectile dysfunction. But potency was a huge part of Henry's personal brand. To question his sexual ability was to strike at the very heart of his propaganda machine. That said, this question did come up later at a tribunal set up to annul the marriage, which I will come to in the next episode, when it emerged that he had consulted two doctors prior to his wedding night. And, again, I will quote from their testimony. Henry, quote, "...used the counsel of the said doctor chamber to remedy the indisposition of his grace's body." This is very important, as this is the mission that Henry was worried about his potency. Dr. Chamber goes on to say that Henry came to him asking, quote, how that he had not that night known the Queen, and so he did likewise diverse other times consulting with him thereupon. In which consultation, the said Dr. Chamber counselled His Majesty not to enforce himself, for eschewing such inconveniences as by debility, ensuing in that case were to be feared. It goes on to say that Henry took this advice and spent a night apart from Anne, so as to save up some love for her, one suspects. On the next night, he tried sex again, but once more with no success, because, quote, His grace found her body in such sort, disordered and indisposed to excite and provoke any lust in him. The other doctor, a Dr. Butts, because of course he was called Dr. Butts, in his deposition, gives probably the most famous piece of evidence that Henry uses as evidence against Anne, but it could equally give credence to the impotency theory. He states that on the first night, quote, He had not that night carnally known the Queen, 
The second night, he lay not with her. The third and fourth night, his grace lay with her. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And always confessed that he could not know her. And so hath continually confessed unto the said Dr. Butts to this day. And in the meantime, hath confessed to the said Dr. Butts that he hath had duas polosiones nocturnas insomno, and thought himself able to do that with other but not with her. Now, if your Latin is a little rusty, duas pollutionis nocturnas insomno has a few translations. Literally, it means two nocturnal pollutions in sleep, but sometimes it's given as nocturnal emissions, which is my personal favourite. Basically, it means wet dreams. I don't think I need to go into too much more detail than that. The reason this is brought up, since it is rather personal at best and embarrassing at worst, is that bit at the end, where he basically says that he could become erect and ejaculate perfectly fine on his own, and with other partners, it was only with Anne that he could not perform, and that is because she was ugly. Okay, so I think that's quite enough about Henry VIII's penis. I think you get the gist. Henry is claiming that Anne was so repulsive that even though he was a stallion of a man still, he could not have sex with her. Modern scholarship doubts this, pointing to the fact that he had been accused of periodic impotency before, would be again, and that this would be expected of a man of Henry's age, weight, and health. There is also another argument that was brought up in the trial that says that this was partly Anne's fault because of her own lack of sexual knowledge. This is because one contemporary account quotes some of Anne's ladies, who claim that Anne said to them, quote, why, said she, when he comes to bed, he kisses me and taketh me by the hand and biddeth me good night, sweetheart, and in the morning kisses me and biddeth me farewell, darling. Is this not enough? While this would be adorable innocence in the extreme, it's rather fanciful that she thought this constituted sex. One of the chief jobs of a mother of daughters at the time was to give them an almost blow-by-blow, I'm just so full of smut today, instructions of what was expected of them on their wedding night. Anne's mother was nothing if not a proud producer of good, obedient wives, and so it is unthinkable that she would have neglected this part of her daughter's education. If Anne was not aware that something was wrong beforehand, she certainly would have known now. Within a fortnight or so of their wedding, 
Henry and she had attempted intercourse on at least five occasions and had been unsuccessful in all of them. She may have heard tell that she was being blamed for this and so resolved to do something about it. Anne is so often portrayed as being very passive during her marriage, but this is far from the truth. At a joust held to celebrate her marriage, she discarded some of her German clothes and dressed in the more fashionable French style. According to the Hall Chronicle, quote, This so set forth her beauty and good visage that every creature rejoiced to behold her. Well, we know that's not true, because it did not affect Henry one little bit. To the public, though, and even to Anne's own entourage, everything appeared just fine. I've just mentioned a joust, but there were also feasts and tournaments held in honour of the marriage. The German guests were presented with all sorts of gifts, and all sorts of diplomatic talks were had. Basically, Henry and Cromwell were behaving as if everything was just fine. The only other people he knew, at least for the first week or so, were those two doctors, but soon word began to spread that something was flaccid in the state of England. Okay, I really will stop now. After a few weeks at Greenwich, the court moved to Westminster in early February, and once again, Henry wanted to give the impression that everything was cool, and so the court travelled up river in a great pageant in a number of elaborately decorated barges. There was music, bunting, cannon fire, the works, and Anne was prominent in all of this. There was, though, one thing that some eagle-eyed people may have noticed. The king and queen travelled in separate barges. Perhaps the strain was beginning to get to Anne, because it was around this time that she and Henry had a bit of a falling out. And, perhaps predictably, it was all over Princess Mary, because she is just so full of drama, that one. We're not entirely sure why... But it seems that Henry was keen for his wife and daughter to have an audience at this time, but Anne refused, being, according to Cromwell, quote, stubborn and willful. Why this was is not entirely clear, but it may be that, given her own marriage was in doubt, given that it was still unconsummated, Anne did not want to spend time in the presence of Henry's declared bastard daughter. She was also the first cousin of Emperor Charles V, who was her brother's enemy. It wasn't a good look. Whatever the reason was, it seems to be a fairly isolated incident, as actually Mary and Anne seem to have gotten on pretty well. They were about the same age, and had both been on the receiving end of Henry's bad graces. On her part, Mary treated Anne with the respect due to a queen, a fact noted by our old friend Eustace Chapuis. I would love to give you more little stories about Anne's time as queen. Things that she did, policies she influenced, that sort of thing. Unfortunately, however, we know frustratingly little. We know that she liked to play cards with the ladies, she received some interesting eccentric gifts, such as a parrot and some eels, God knows why. She ordered a fancy cloth and red bonnet for baby Edward, perhaps because of some genuine affection for her stepson, or maybe it was to curry favour with the king. She and Henry did some formal interaction this time too. She travelled with him to the opening of Parliament in April, and we know of at least one meal that the two shared together in her quarters. Their most significant public appearance after their wedding festivities came on May Day, quite late on as it would turn out in their short-lived marriage. Over the three days, there was a great joust to celebrate it, and it was a spectacular event with the king and queen at its centre. It seems that she made a very great impression on those in attendance, and indeed she was a very popular queen during her short reign. She may have only come from a relatively small German duchy, but she had been brought up and trained to be the centre of occasions such as this, and she played her part perfectly. But, alas, it seems that as soon as Henry had failed to consummate the marriage within the first couple of weeks of it, he was completely checked out and began to look elsewhere. Now, Anne's story is often intertwined with that of Thomas Cromwell, as they both found themselves out of a job because of Henry's lack of affection, 
But it's interesting to know that shortly after the marriage, Cromwell got a promotion. He was raised to the peerage as Earl of Essex and was given a new office as Chamberlain of England. So his fate was not exactly sealed by it. By now Cromwell had accumulated so much power into his hands that there really was nothing going on in England that he did not know about or have a hand in. This naturally meant that he had acquired some enemies. He was not nobly born, and he was a Protestant who had led the charge against the Pope and the monasteries. All of this only added to the list of people who wanted to take him down. Now, this is not a podcast about Thomas Cromwell. If you'd like a detailed look at his life, I would recommend you pick up any of the scores of books on him, not to mention Harry Mantel's two Man Booker Prize winning novels on his life. That said, though, it's impossible to tell the story of Anne of Cleves without a bit of Cromwell, so let's briefly bring him up to speed from where we last left him. After the fall of Anne Boleyn, for which, if you remember, I held him primarily responsible, Cromwell continued his persecution of the monasteries and plundering of their resources in order to fund England's treasury. For this, he had Henry's wholehearted support. He went further and helped bring about the publication in English of The Great Bible, the first authorised translation of the Bible into English, which is a big deal. Now, some have questioned his own personal zeal for Protestantism and whether it was simply a matter of convenience, but there is no doubt in my mind that he was far more of a true believer than Henry ever was, and it was this that really led to the growth of opposition, but more on that in a second. In the last episode, we saw how Cromwell led the search for Henry's fourth wife that eventually led to the choice of Anne of Cleves, and this was primarily driven by a fear of an alliance between Charles V and Francis I. These two had been at loggerheads their entire reigns, with Francis usually getting the worst of it, but in the late 1530s, the two had a rapprochement and seemed to be considering some sort of formal alliance, or at the very least an informal understanding. It was the enmity between France and the Empire that had meant England was not under threat of attack during the Great Matter, the break with Rome, and the dissolution of the monasteries. If those two came to an accord, then England could face invasion, or even holy war, spearheaded by the two greatest Christian princes of Europe. It was that, more than anything else, that had recommended Anne to Cromwell, and why he had been so keen on the match. In his eyes, it was Cleves and their membership of the Lutheran-led Schmalkaldic League that was the key to English national security and Henry's place on the throne. Okay, so that catches us up. So at this point, Henry is not actively trying to get a divorce from Anne. He was no fool and was advised by Cromwell that any attempt to do so would be disastrous diplomatically. There was a reason why Anne had been chosen, and this would hardly be the first entirely loveless marriage in royal history. Henry had managed to find love and romance elsewhere already, more on that later, and so for now it seems he agreed to go along with the pretense of a happy marriage on the diplomatic stage. When much of Anne's entourage went home, soon after the wedding, they spread stories of how well everything was going. And this was important, because at this point there was a very real chance that Charles V could be going to war with Cleves and her allies. As usual, it's all very complicated and I won't go into it, but it all boiled down to a dispute over the Duchy of Gelders that both Duke William and Emperor Charles claimed. Henry and Cromwell, of course, had no desire to go to war with Charles, but they also had to back up their ally, and so much of the pretense going on in Henry's marriage in the early spring of 1540 was due to these diplomatic tensions. As I said, though, the main thing holding it all together was the fear of a Franco-Imperial alliance. Should that break down... Well, then things will be different. Enter Thomas Howard. Now, we've met the third Duke of Norfolk before. He had, under the orders of Catherine of Aragon, led the English army at the Battle of Flodden in 1514 that had vanquished the Scots. He was also Anne Boleyn's uncle and had passed the sentence of death over her at her trial. 
while now he was the leader of the Anti-Cromwell Party, a religious conservative, and was also, more importantly, the uncle of Henry's new mistress and soon-to-be fifth wife, Catherine Howard. Now, I'm not going to talk about Catherine in this episode, as I will cover her in full in her own series. What you need to know for now is that she was very young, very pliant, and very beautiful, and currently one of Anne's ladies-in-waiting. None of this was by accident. Norfolk and his allies had helped bring this affair to bear, and it was all part of a plot to bring Cromwell down and bring his niece to the throne, and thereby make himself the most important man in England after the king. Henry fell hook, line, and sinker for this teenage beauty. She was the damsel that he had been looking for, and he must have her. From then on in, Henry was not just seeking a divorce for the sake of being rid of Anne, he wanted one so that he could marry Catherine Howard. Anne was also no fool, and she saw what was going on between Henry and Catherine, and she was understandably not thrilled about it. She spoke to the Cleves ambassador, Carl Haast, about it, and he, after expressing the surprise that she knew about it, as apparently he was under the impression it was being kept hidden from her, told her not to worry. Henry was renowned for his affairs. It didn't mean anything. Shows what he knew. Getting his niece into Henry's bed, though, was not the only part of Norfolk's cunning plan. He recognised that the only thing keeping Cromwell in Henry's graces was his foreign policy expertise and the need to maintain the Cleves' marriage. So, he decided to start throwing spanners into the works. Unlike Cromwell, whose plan for English security depended on the hated Cleves' marriage, Norfolk had a different, altogether more Machiavellian approach. He recognised that the main threat was the Franco-Imperial alliance. Yet Francis and Charles were natural enemies. Why not just break them up? and send them back to hostilities. Then, Henry could do what he liked. And essentially, that is exactly what Norfolk went and did. Now, I am grossly oversimplifying here, of course, but Norfolk here managed to solve England's foreign policy dilemma without having to resort to war, and open the door to allow Henry to divorce his wife. He took all the credit, and Cromwell was left humiliated with egg all over his face. Cromwell had also failed in another job, that of sex therapist to Henry and Anne. The Queen, knowing that something clearly was wrong given that the marriage was still unconsummated, went to Cromwell for advice, and Henry himself gave permission for the two to discuss their issue. But it seems that he chickened out and outsourced the conversation to the wife of one of his underlings. It's not known why Cromwell did not try harder to make this marriage work. After all, his life, it turns out, depended on it. But for whatever reason, he did not help Anne out. Cromwell's fall, when it came, was ironic in many ways, since it bears a striking resemblance to his coup against Anne. It was lightning quick, deadly, and a complete judicial farce. Norfolk and his allies had persuaded the king that Cromwell was to blame for every problem that he had, and so, on the 10th of June 1540, he was arrested and sent to the Tower. He didn't even get the dignity of a show trial, as he was convicted by Parliament by act of attainder. Basically, Parliament stated that, even though there was no trial, he was guilty. Of course, he wasn't really. As David Starkey puts it, quote, The charges were a fantastic mixture of treason, heresy, and scandalum magnatum, or being rude and oppressive to nobles. Only the last had any vestige of truth. But truth, as Cromwell hath fatally taught Henry, was not important. Only Henry's convenience was. With the act of attainder, Cromwell was legally dead, and he was kept alive for a few weeks only to facilitate the now inevitable divorce from Anne of Cleves. And it is there, with the fall of Henry's greatest minister of all, that I will leave you for today. 
Next week, I'm going to have to get used to saying that, we will conclude Anne's story. Like Catherine of Aragon, the legality of her marriage would be examined by a church court, but this would be a far smoother ride for Henry. This would, though, not be the end of Anne's time in England. Oh no. She would live on through his reign and into that of his two children, surviving Reformation and Counter-Reformation alike. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 